Back in April, Montana State Representative Zoe Zephyr was barred from the House floor. Zephyr had refused to apologize to colleagues for saying they had blood on their hands after they supported a ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth. Here's Representative Zephyr speaking before the disciplinary vote. I have had friends who have taken their lives because of these bills. I have fielded calls from families in Montana, including one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of the anti-trans bills. And in that hearing, our caucus pleaded with the Republican chair of the Judiciary Committee to not allow certain testimony to keep decorum. And we were told a lot of people have a lot of opinions on these things. So when I rose up and said, there is blood on your hands, I was not being hyperbolic. I was speaking to the real consequences of the votes that we as legislators take in this body. And when the speaker asks me to apologize uh, on behalf of decorum, what he is really asking me to do is be silent when my community is facing bills that get us killed. He's asking me to be complicit in this legislature's eradication of our community, and I refuse to do so, and I will always refuse to do so. Representative Zephyr is one of several lawmakers who face punishment after speaking out against attacks on trans rights. In Oklahoma, a non-binary state legislator was censured for allowing a protester to use their office. And in Nebraska, a lawmaker was threatened with censure over her criticism of an anti-trans bill. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we look at attacks on transgender people across the U.S. Later, we'll discuss anti-trans legislation in sports and how trans people are finding joy despite discrimination. But first, we look at how states are taking away the rights of trans people. Orion Rumler is a reporter covering LGBTQ plus issues for the 19th News. Orion, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much, Kalila. It's great to be here. You know, sadly and unfortunately, this is an issue and a challenge that is being magnified across the U.S. You cover so much of what's happening at the state level, and we are seeing in states across the country really a dramatic increase in anti-trans legislation. Walk our listeners through some of those sort of key pieces of legislation that we should be paying attention to and sort of the, you know, the broader through line that's undergirding much of that change. There's a lot of expansion to this legislation that I'll walk through, but the biggest through line is that advocates are saying that the proponents of these bills are just being more blatant with uh, wanting to make trans people feel like they can't exist in public. And so uh, we're seeing that in states like Montana, which is the first state to pass a law with a provision about social transition. And social transition is just when a trans person wears different clothes, changes their hairstyle, uses different pronouns. Nothing medical about that. Other states have tried to include that, but Montana is the first to put into law. Overall, we're also seeing more states enact bathroom, uh, school bathroom bans. Uh, Florida and Kentucky expanded their, uh, quote, don't say gay policies, and those prevent classroom instruction on gender uh, identity, sexuality, they expanded those through the 12th grade. 
Um, and then more states are passing the gender affirming care bans into law. And something we've seen building since the very beginning of this year are more states wanting to restrict uh, that care for adults. Missouri is, we just saw Missouri enact that through the state attorney general's order, although that uh, order has been temporarily uh, paused uh, through a lawsuit. Um, so it, that did not take effect in Missouri. I'm an educator by training and background. And I have been really troubled by what we're seeing in this legislation, this lobbying, this fear around schools, around curriculum, around children, teachers and educators being able to be and not feel like they have to justify themselves. What are you seeing? We talk a lot about Florida, right? But it's not just Florida. What are you seeing around schools and this anti-trans legislation? Oddly enough, in a lot of the gender-affirming care bills that have been introduced, there's these provisions that include, um, that compel teachers and state, like uh, teachers and school employees to uh, alert parents if the student is questioning their gender identity. Um, it'll, it varies on how the bill words it. And sometimes it'll be like, it will say directly, like, if you if if you know about a student who's questioning, they don't phrase it as questioning their gender identity, but that's what it translates into. Like, you have to tell your you have to tell the parent or the guardian. And that's worrying to advocates, because from what we see in Trevor Project data for a lot of trans and queer youth, school can be safer than home if their parents are not supportive. I'm thinking about the early days of the pandemic when everything shut down suddenly. And I'm remembering being so fearful for a group of my students, trans young people who said, I don't wanna go home, it's not safe. Who said to me privately, can I please not have my camera on when we zoom into class because I have to change when I'm home just so I can be safe. And it's outing me in a way that's creating all these other harms. How do I then manage coming back? And I wondered in the work that you do and the work that you're seeing, that connection between what we know is a decline in mental health and well-being for young people writ large, but particularly for trans youth who, let's be honest, being a teenager is tough. Being a young person is tough, no matter what journey you're sort of navigating. But especially when you're in a space where you can't feel safe at home or in school, you have to worry about being outed and all of those dangers. How do we connect that, particularly for young people, for teens, for young adults, that notion of safety and these kinds of policies that are designed to out people and really keep them stigmatized? Um, the queer and trans youth already like go through a lot of bullying in school. Um, and that's something that uh, trans and queer experts and advocates are really worried about is these are kids who already go through a lot of bullying, um, who can feel who can be especially vulnerable because every kid is figuring out their identity and like trying to fit in and feel awkward all the time and embarrassed. But then these are kids who are having to grapple with their identity often in a state that as a few of them have expressed to me that is making them feel like they don't belong um like trans young adults and teenagers have expressed to me like it feels like my state government is telling me that i shouldn't be here like i shouldn't exist 
And that is a very surreal thing for me to hear from a child or like a teenager, like a young adult when I'm talking with them. Like they feel singled out by politicians. Everything that we have talked about thus far, Orion, has been very challenging, very problematic. But I do want to lift that there are some spaces where people are pushing back against this legislation to say no one should be made to feel that they don't belong or that their existence is not worthy in this place. Where are we seeing some resistance? What are the ways that people can stand up and say, no, this does not represent who we want to be or who we should be? Thank you so much. And Connecticut is actually one of those states. Um, In y'all's state, uh, Democrats introduced a bill that would protect public school teachers from FOIA requests about communications with students about their gender identity and their sexual orientation, which is relevant because like we're seeing in other states, there are these bills that would, you know, could put a kid in danger if, you know, a teacher has to tell the parents about a new gender identity. And we're also seeing um, at the federal level, there's uh, a trans bill of rights piece of legislation that's been reintroduced um, that should advance further. Um, and that legislation introduces more protections um, and play at the federal level, which is also important because right now we're seeing a few bills that have been brought in Congress that would, well, that would restrict gender from and care for trans youth, although those won't pass likely will not pass through Congress right now. We've talked about Montana, Florida, Texas. We've talked about Connecticut, lots of different states, lots of different parts of the country. Before we started, you and I were sort of mentioning our mutual connection to the South. What are you seeing geographically and regionally? Because it seems to me that You know, people have this idea that if you live in a particular part of the country, you're exempt from these kinds of challenges. But what you've just laid out is that every state in this country is grappling with these issues and these concerns, which means even more importantly, that people in every state are having to navigate. Are there parts of the country that that get this better than others? Or is this really a national challenge? I love this question, especially because... um... I, I was grew up in Georgia and also growing up in the South as a trans person, I can get kind of defensive about um, like why I enjoyed growing up there. Um, but, you know, we are seeing that most of the states that are actually signing these bills into law, a lot of them are in the South. Um, but what we do know from data from places like the Williams Institute is a lot of trans queer, especially uh, LGBTQ people of color, live in the South. So, um, and the Move and Advancement Project with Traxi's bills, they've argued that Black transgender people may be like the most affected by these bills because a lot of them live in the South. So we're seeing these especially vulnerable populations are in these states. Um, We're also seeing some of these democratically controlled states more of them are following California's lead and trying to be uh, refuge states, trying to pass protections to make it easier uh, if you move, if you bring your family to move into that state, if you're fleeing from another state. And based on the data we know about how in- institutional racism and poverty works, if you are an LGBTQ person of color in the South, maybe you can't afford 
to move to somewhere like California. I'm listening to you, Orion, and I'm troubled because the idea that we need refuge states in the United States, right? That we have people who are fleeing harm, violence, undermining, all of the things that we point out in the rest of the world as we are better than that, all of the things that we thought we had learned through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s about the need to move away from that. What you're naming is that it is a very real present challenge for people today and that collectively we can think about that. You've also mentioned politics a couple of times and the elections. As we look ahead to the 2024 presidential election, thinking about the things that are happening at the state level, what should we be paying attention to now and into the near future? I mean, something that's been standing out for me for the past, not I'm, I've lost all track of time since 2020, but for the past while, is how uh, politicians have been adopting more anti-trans rhetoric, um, especially for former President Donald Trump. Um, I forget exactly when this rally was, um, but at one of his rallies in the past couple months, he got uh, one of the strongest moments of applause in response to saying something that was transphobic. Um, and so to me, that's something I try to keep an eye on is what is he getting the most um emotional feedback on and then we're also at least for me um and other reporters are paying attention to what florida governor ron DeSantis does and says on the campaign trail um because his state has stood out as one of the states that has not been afraid to take executive action on anti-trans policies like we saw with um florida department of education they expanded the don't say gay bill well, they expanded on what had formerly been a bill, and then they took that action themselves. Um, and Florida is also a state where the Board of Medicine took action to restrict gender-affirming care outside the state house. Um, and so I'm paying attention to how Republicans that we expect to run in 2024, how they continue to build their profiles on legislation like this, and whether they bring it to the debate stage in 2024 and how people respond to that. So we'll have to have you back in 2024 to help us work through all of this, because as you have mentioned before, it's not just about the people who are trying to push this legislation. It's also about those who are pushing back and resisting. So we thank you for your work. Orion Rumler is LGBTQ reporter for the 19th News. Thank you, Orion. Thank you so much, Kalila. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, you can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You can also text SAVE to 741-741 for the Crisis Text Line. When we return, Carly Chardonnay-Webb explains how attacks on trans rights in sports go far beyond the world of athletics. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later, we'll hear about the radical power of trans joy amidst the rise in anti-trans legislation. But first... Attacks on trans rights often extend into the world of sports. In 2020, the families of a group of cisgender girls, or girls whose gender identity aligns with the sex they were assigned at birth, filed a federal lawsuit to prevent transgender girls from competing against them here in Connecticut. That lawsuit came less than a year after the group made a Title IX discrimination complaint. The lawsuit was dismissed by a federal judge in 2021, and that dismissal was upheld by a federal appeals court last December. But earlier this year, that same court decided to rehear the appeal. Here to talk to us about anti-trans legislation in sports is Carly Chardonnay-Webb. Carly is a contributor to OutSports and a peer support operator for Trans Lifeline. Carly, welcome to Disrupted. Well, it's good to be here. We're so excited. We have a lot to talk about with you because you wear many hats. But I want to start with the world of sports because you not only write about that, you are also an athlete. Share with our listeners what some of the current legislation that we're seeing regarding trans athletes and trans athletic participation. We're seeing a wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation across the board. Right now, there are 20 states that have passed some form of restriction or an outright ban on transgender boys and girls playing in school activities, playing in school athletic activities. And the main crux of this bill is a lot of hearsay, a lot of fear. And really, it's not about sport to the people that are pushing this. They're pushing a very a larger agenda. And this agenda has a lot of intersectional arcs. The same people, for example, that are pushing to to begin with, keep transgender students out of school sports. They're also the same people that want to ban books in your library that are saying, like, we don't want that CRT taught in our schools, a.k.a. they don't want African-American history taught in your schools or Asian-American history taught in your schools or Hispanic-American history taught in your schools. That's what we're really talking about when we're talking about the sports issue. And we in Connecticut, even being a blue state, considered a liberal state, states where rights are protected, we can't afford to be smug in this moment because the anti-trans sports hysteria started in this state. We should never forget the names and dry a year wouldn't Terry Miller because in many ways, the attacks on those two now young college women started this wave. I want to hone in on what you just mentioned about Connecticut. Connecticut really made national news with two high school athletes, track athletes who wanted to run and who wanted to participate. That led to a number of lawsuits that are still yet unresolved, even though those athletes, as you said, have progressed to a different level of their education. 
What do you see right now for trans athletes in Connecticut that come out of these national trends, but that you're paying attention to right here in this state? Well, first thing, let's understand something. Let's stop talk. Let's stop using the term trans athletes. when We know we're talking about trans women because that is what that's what the crux of all this is. The crux of this is trans women and girls, and they're trying to dehumanize it and depersonalize this to try and desensitize you to the issue. No. Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller were two girl or two high school girls just want to run some track. And by the laws of the state, they were allowed to do that because no Connecticut school child shall be denied equal protection under law. And we're even seeing this in this state. Uh, just last year, the Greenwich School Board voted voted to strip away Title IX protections from transgender students in their school district. That wasn't in Alabama. That was here. And you're seeing actions by uh, by certain members of certain. Part- no, we're going to name name. We're going we're gonna to spill tea today. Connecticut's Republican Party, certain state legislators continuing their anti-trans wave over the last three years. Remember, these are people that want to raise money off of demonizing Andrea and Terry. There was a bill. Thankfully, it di- apparently it died in committee that would punish teachers for affirming a child's pronouns. There was another bill that tried to put up an anti-transport ban here in Connecticut. So don't sleep. The contagion can come here. And those are the trends that you're seeing. It often starts with the sports thing because that's a cheap mission kill. And then from sports, they'll say, okay, if we keep them out of sports, you know what that means? Keep them out of the locker room. mean, keep them out of the bathroom. You got six. You have six states right now have bathroom bills pending. And then from there, there's also the anti-drag hysteria, which is absolute, which is absolutely stupefying that they're trying to pass this, but there's a method to the nonsense because that also, unfortunately, is a cheap mission kill. So the trend we're seeing is it starts with sports, then it goes to public accommodations, get the things that people are afraid about in the short term, and then sneak in the real serious stuff that people ought to be abhorring when they're not looking, i.e., that's that's the affirming health care ban. And on the other side, play to the fact that most cisgender people in our country do not understand these issues. Carly, let's let's also talk about what's happening broadly in terms of you just said many people may not know someone who is trans. You talked about the familiarity and the knowledge. One of the things we know historically is that this issue of discriminating against people based on their identity is not new in the United States. We have decades of legislation, Civil Rights Act of 1964. Last year, we just celebrated the 50th year of Title IX that wasn't just about athletics, but was really supposed to establish this foundation of gender equity. And now 51 years later, we're still seeing some new federal questions about Title IX. What's the connection there between Title IX what's happening at the federal government with the Biden administration and the kinds of issues that you've talked about for trans women athletes and their participation? Well, it goes deeper than Title IX. At, at one level, this goes all the way back to Dred Scott, defining who is a citizen in this country, who is worthy of rights. What you're seeing, starting with all these different bills, be it, the, be it athletes, be it just affirming healthcare, which is now extending to the adult realm, what is really being told, the message you're being told, especially with the message that you're being told when transgender and non-binary legislators are essentially being silenced 
from representing their constituents in other states. What you're seeing is a we're going to say a right wing conservative group in this country who are saying that you have no rights by which we are bound to respect. Essentially, this is to me, this is Dred Scott 2.0. You're defining exactly who is in America. And some people want to have that discussion. I thought we ended that discussion at least a century ago. But we're back here. We're back here because certain people want to get us, want to put us back here. And it's not just about LGBTQ people. That's the strategy that they put together. They said from the beginning, okay. We've lost all this ground in the culture war because I know that's what this is really about. This is about something deeper. Lost marriage, lost, lost employment discrimination, lost military service. So they pivoted and they said, OK, what do we got to do? OK, you know what? Let's let's work on this T in LGBT. Let's separate that from this. And then once we get rid of the T, we're going after the rest of your letters, because in three states, they're talking about ending marriage equality. And then once they get and at the same time, on a parallel track, they're already going after reproductive rights, which is really a matter of bodily autonomy and health care, which is a, which affects every American, whether you're trans, cis, straight or gay or whatever you are. That affects you, too. And along the way, another parallel track. OK, we got to roll back all this. We got to roll back civil rights 1.0, which means the attacks on critical race theory. That's really attack on black citizenship. Snuck through the back door using LGBTQ people as a wedge. Don't fall for it. So you're seeing all these parallel tracks, but they're leaving to the same nexus. You have a group in this country who truly want to take the United States at least back to the 1950s. And if they had their way back to the 1850s and if they really had their way back to the 1750s, that's how far these people wish to go. So it goes beyond sports. It's this bigger trend that's happening and you're seeing it. And they're saying the quiet part out loud. And that's when we got to get into the solutions. Number one, we need a populace that's willing to come together and come together within our common interest, our common interest as American citizens and our common interest as members of the working class, because all this divides working people from their common interest. And we're seeing it right here in this state right now with yet another austerity budget coming out of Hartford. Carly, let me jump in for a moment because there will be yep. people listening to this conversation and they will say, this seems so big, so overwhelming, so overpowering. What exactly can I do or how do we start? And I want to start with a very basic thing, right? Because too often people hear big problems and, and think that it requires a big solution instead of starting where they are. And I want to bring in here your experience as an athlete. Um, you were just sharing with us before we started the conversation, right? The, the work that you are doing as a member of the Reapers women's football team in the Women's Tackle Football League here in Connecticut. And I share that because that is an example of starting where you are to make it clear, one, I'm here. And you cannot deny my existence. And two, I'm participating in something that I love with people that I respect. And that in and of itself, Carly, is an act of resistance and an act of self-definition. What does it mean for you to be a part of that league and to be able to do participate in a sport that you love? Well, first, going to give you a little story how I happened to like end up on this team. They had a tent at West Hartford Pride last year. And a friend of mine said, hey, 
hey, you know, hey, they got a women's football team. And at first I was like, you know what? Uh, they probably wouldn't let me play because of who I am. And even if they did, I'm 51 years old. I don't think there's much call for 51-year-old anything on a football field. So I go, but maybe they need a team videographer, PR person, you know, or just let them know that, hey, I support them. I go over to the tent and I see these very intense group of women who look like that if they called a game right then and there, they would have gone to their cars, break out pads and helmets, and let's do this. And here I am in the meantime, I'm doing typical pride wear. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm showing my Azure salmon and cream. I, I'm rocking cat ears. I am just I'm there to enjoy pride. But I also was carrying a football with me because I had this football jersey made done in trans pride, trans flag pride colors. And I was there and I was like getting some information on the team. And then all of a sudden somebody noticed you look like you want to play. And I was like, can I? And she's like, we are a women's football team for all women. And that right there plants a seed. See that that was the first part. It wasn't tolerance. It was beyond tolerance. It was acceptance. We were like, if you want to play and you're able to play, we welcome you. And we practiced every Saturday, 630 a.m. It's dark outside. It's cold outside. But we were there. Me along with the rest of rest of what were becoming new teammates. Then we get pads. We start banging pads. They start drilling me in the ground a little bit. Now, mind you, I've not played football in about 35 years. Haven't played football since high school. And throughout this period, I was getting the message that, no, Carly, you're you're part of the sisterhood. You're one of us. And that was important because I was afraid I would be rejected. I was afraid I would probably be rejected. I probably told you can't play. And it, and it was the exact opposite. I have had such a beautiful time in part because you're asking what people can do. The first thing you can do is tap into your humanity. Cis people in Connecticut, hear this. Tap into your humanity right now. Tap into that humanity of how do you want to enter a space where you're unsure, where you're unsure, you feel a little insecure. How would you want someone to welcome you? You'd want to feel, you'd want someone to come up and say, welcome, friend, right? Same thing. Tap into your humanity because it's there. I am of a belief that most people are not homophobes. Most people are not transphobes. Neither are in your DNA. Neither are hereditary traits. Let your humanity shine through. Be open. Be willing to listen. Big word there. And be willing to learn. And as you're listening and learning and growing and gathering this information, that will give you the fortitude and the buttressing to not only be an ally, but be an accomplice and stand shoulder to shoulder because this is a human rights battle that's being waged right now. Arthur Ashe said it best, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And the first place is starting where you are is within yourself and your spaces. That's, that's the best place to start because if we all work on our little corner of the world, if all of us stay diligent and consistent in working our little corners of the world, we're all gonna build a better world. We're grateful to you for reminding us to tap into our humanity right where we are at this time. Carly Chardonnay Webb is a contributor to Outsports. Thank you so much, Carly. Thank you for having me. Coming up, Connecticut resident Dawn Ennis talks about an article she wrote for the Daily Beast called What Makes Trans Joy Such a Powerful Antidote to Transphobia. 
This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the rise in anti-trans legislation around the U.S. My colleague, Kevin Barry, is professor of law at Quinnipiac University. He recently spoke about laws restricting access to health care, both transition health care and abortion care. These laws have something to teach us about love, or more specifically, what love is not. So what's the opposite of love? It's animus and violence for sure, but I think it's more subtle than that. It's a lack of restraint. It's using every drop of power to achieve one's goals. It's a refusal to apologize, a willingness to forget or overlook. It's silence in the face of people hurting. It's distrust of expertise. It's preaching to acquire a privilege instead of listening to the experiences of the unheard. And yes, it's the denial of health care to people who need it to live and thrive. The denial of health care is the opposite of love. We're living in an authoritarian moment, when marginalized people are scapegoated, when violence is courted, when truth is distorted, and when our expertise is denigrated. This authoritarian moment that we all are in will one day subside. It's like water. We're swimming. Sometimes it feels like we're sinking in an ocean that doesn't have a shape yet. But it will. We'll get to shore and we'll look out and we'll see the contours that define this moment. And when we do, we'll give thanks for having kept each other afloat. That was Quinnipiac University law professor Kevin Barry. He was reading a speech that he recently delivered at a faculty event. One way we can keep each other afloat is through joy. For some trans people in America right now, joy is a necessary and powerful way to push back against the attacks on rights and humanity. Dawn Ennis is a journalist and professor at the University of Hartford. She wrote about this for the Daily Beast last summer. Dawn, welcome to Disrupted. I'm so glad to be part of this. We wanted to talk to you because you had this important article last year, and it's called What Makes Trans Joy Such a Powerful Antidote to Transphobia? Let's go really to the basics. How do you define trans joy and what does that look and feel like? Trans joy is something that I pitched to my editor as an alternative or as an accompaniment to all of the hate that's out there. Because I think that most people look at the transgender community as embattled, as brave, as targeted, and they miss the point of why we come out in the first place. It's because we wanna live our lives. And although there is hate, there is oppression, there is horribleness in the world, 
there's also joy. And it's sometimes the little things, like somebody calling you miss or ma'am, somebody calling you sir, somebody getting your pronouns right. Other times it's people embracing you as a friend or loving you as a partner without worrying about the whole trans thing. The people I spoke to said they experienced trans joy by living their whole self, by bringing their whole self to their work, to their school, to sports. And if you hold back something from any endeavor, you're not giving your whole self. And this is what trans people are doing. And that's why I wrote about trans joy. And just as an aside, I'm writing about it again because the issues have actually gotten worse. And this is will, will appear in the June issue of Connecticut Voice magazine. What did you discover in writing that initial article and now the new article that you have forthcoming? What did you discover and explore in those articles? I have to uh, start by saying there were responses in which people said, I have no joy. Joy escapes me. And my heart broke for them because I've been there. As a matter of fact, just a quick aside, I was, I hate to admit this, I was two weeks late in delivering this article because I could not find it within myself to even share stories of joy. It wasn't writer's block as much as it was life block. The world was coming down around my ears and I just, I, I needed to find it within myself to share these stories. But to your question, the people I spoke to said that they found uh, the community, the sisterhood, brotherhood, and non-binary siblinghood to be part of what gave them the ability to find joy. The fact that people would not just be allies, cisgender, straight people, but they'd be accomplices. They would stand shoulder to shoulder with them. That people felt that in being their true selves, other people would come out to them. A trans person comes out not just once, but almost every day of their life. And sometimes people who are not gay or lesbian or queer or cis, the people who are cisgender, they sometimes say, you know what? Your courage and your strength gave me the ability to tell you about my secret, but my closet, alcoholism, gambling, not being able to have children. There are so many things that we keep to ourselves that when a trans person reveals themselves, it brings us joy to know that other people see our self-reflection and turn it around for themselves. We also, Dawn, live in an environment, a country, and a culture where people are, are often left to feel like they have to defend who they are or they have to justify who they are. And I wonder if you see joy as really a practice of freedom, a practice of liberation from that kind of, of stigma that other people impose, but also allowing people to define for themselves what brings them joy 
and that they're entitled to that? Is that a part of, of what you write about it and really part of what you do in your work and communicating these important stories? I think that um, the first part is very true, that um, joy is freedom. Right now in America, there are states where a woman like me can't use a public bathroom. We can't see a doctor to get health care. That's specific to our transgender identity. We are treated as other. And what joy is, is the opposite of not just sadness or anger, but restrictions. Joy is freedom. And what joy brings in terms of freedom is the ability to spread joy. Wouldn't you like to know people who are happy with themselves? Wouldn't you be a better person if you were surrounded by people who have a positive outlook on themselves and on life? I think that trans people are the most introspective people on the planet. To, to our detriment, sometimes we do a lot of navel gazing, but it's because we're trying to explore ourselves and what it means to be ourselves. And I think that the thing that's missing from the whole dialogue about trans people is that so many people don't know a trans person or they only see people on TV or on TikTok or on Instagram. I'm not Dylan. I'm not Caitlin. I'm not Laverne. I'm not any of those famous trans people. I'm just another mom. I'm just another woman. I'm just trying to get by just like everybody else. And although my name has been in the news with bylines and things, I am just one person who wants to be seen the way everyone else wants to be seen as themselves. I shared recently a piece of my work and someone commented, oh, it's that transgender freak who's grooming children. And this person doesn't know me. I don't think that they could possibly say that if they knew me. And what bothers me most is, is that nobody stood up to say, hey, don't do that. That's the absence of joy, is when other people don't act as allies or accomplices. For me, i got a thick skin. I have to. But for the average trans person, when they're called these names, it can be debilitating. It can be hard just to get up out of bed in the morning. We are at a time in this country and really the world where hate, where disrespect and the sort of dehumanizing approach to trans people is leading to violence and transphobia is manifesting in real ways that impact not just people today, but I worry for years and generations to come. Connect the two for us about how trans joy, the way that you describe it, the way that uh, the people that you talk to experience, how is trans joy the antidote or push back against that transphobia that gives a very narrow picture of people as people? What trans joy does is it robs the bully, it robs the bigot of their narrative because they think that we are grooming children, that we are cheating at sports, that we are castrating or cutting off healthy material of our bodies. These are all the things that people say. When in fact, trans athletes don't always win. I am not doing anything in the bathroom that you're not doing as far as 
using the facilities, washing my hands, checking my hair and makeup, and then scooting out. I'm not trying to have special rights. I just want human rights. The Supreme Court gave me the right to not be fired for who I am. But what about healthcare? What about um, finding a home? What about not being discriminated in society? So the antidote is living our truth, being just an average, regular person experiencing life and being happy about it. I used to make six figures working at ABC News. That was 10 years ago that I came out as transgender. 10 years ago. If I had stayed in the closet, I wouldn't be bringing my whole self to work. Now, I miss the six figures, but I don't miss the part of me that could never really be my true self. And what I love is that other people followed me. They found hope and inspiration in me living my truth. And not just trans people, but gay people and queer people and non-binary folks. And I think that I never set out to be a role model. I just wanted to be my, myself. But I, I'm proud of the fact that um, by being the first journalist in network news to come out as trans, that I sent a message that it's okay. It's okay to come out and it's okay to be your true self. And that's the joy antidote. The joy antidote, as people have told me, is expressing themselves in art and song in their work. Um, people in the military. Oh my God. There was an entire section of like 75 responses that I couldn't fit all in from people in the military who say that they are so gratified that our military welcomes and embraces them because they know they'll have a fighting force that isn't holding anything back. Think about that. Think about what if every occupation looked at trans people the way the military does and saying, be all you can be. <laughs> and be who you are in yes. doing that. Stop pretending to be someone you're not. Hey, I could win an Oscar for my performance as a man. I did a very good imitation for 40 years, but it wasn't true. I was copying what I saw for the last 10 years. I got to be me. I got to be the real me. And I'm not that much different from who I was, but I'm unshackled. I'm free. And I think if you look back at any movement for rights, whether it be the Native Americans or the people marching across Selma, when you see people who aren't members of that community who are marching alongside those folks, that's when you say, we're getting through. We're getting through because people are standing up. When a cisgender person or a straight person stands up for me, it means 10 times more than when my trans brothers or sisters or non-binary friends stand up for me because I know that they have no skin in the game and they want to see and spread that joy that I feel. You've mentioned, Dawn, a couple of things about what it means to have not just allies, but co-conspirators who are willing to stand shoulder to shoulder. There will be people listening to this conversation who say, I don't quite understand all of the points of it. I may not understand the difference of pronouns, or I may not understand what cisgendered means versus uh, non-binary. But what I do understand is that everyone is entitled to joy. What do you say to people who are at that stage of, I don't understand it, but I want to do something? How can we stand shoulder to shoulder with people 
to affirm joy as a birthright, and as you said, an act of freedom? I love this question. I have three answers for you. The first is, if you hear a joke or a insult that you know is transphobic, call it out. Speak up. Say, hey, that's not cool. Not cool. Second, my social media handle is Life After Dawn. Connect with me. I'll introduce you to other people. I'd love to get to know you. I'd love you to get to know me. And here's the third thing. Can I ask you, are you righty or lefty? Right. If all your life you had been writing with your left hand, what would that look like? Be very difficult. <laughs> It'd be difficult. It would be sloppy, right? It wouldn't feel authentic. Well, my friend activist Hannah Simpson says, if I came along and said, no, try using your right hand to write, you'd be like, oh my goodness, this is how it's supposed to be. I feel affirmed now. That's what transgender identity is. It's very similar to handedness. And when people stop forcing lefties to write with their right hand and let them be lefties, there was a giant trend about 100 years ago in left-handedness. Was it because people decided to become left-handed? No, it was because society gave them permission to be who they are. Trans is pretty much the same thing. It's a little different, but I hope people can relate to that expression that just be who you are. Don't hold back. And if I can just say, I get that it's hard. And I'm not asking everyone to march or to stand up and hold picket signs. I'm only asking you to accept. Accept that I live my life, you live your life. If you don't approve, don't transition, okay? Stay how you are. But what is the point in hating? What is the point in oppressing? What will happen if I lose my rights? We've already lost reproductive rights. What's next? Are they going to come for you next? You have to think about it because there is a movement in this country to restrict rights. And if my rights are gone, how secure are you that your rights won't be next? Don Ennis is a journalist and professor at the University of Hartford. Don, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. May we all have joy. <laughs>